We've come a hell of a long way since I was growing up on the prairie with a dad who worked in farming. Romantic notions like seed and plow and sweat are still there, of course, but they're coupled with new realities like artificial intelligence, robotics, and network connectivity. Technology has changed the game, and our presenting sponsor, TELUS, is a big part of that change. TELUS Agriculture is a new business unit dedicated to providing digital connectivity to support the industry and to drive efficiency. Well, that's a big statement. What does it mean? There's no better example than what's happening right now on the Smart Farm at Olds College in Alberta, a post-secondary school specializing in ag tech, horticulture, and environmental stewardship. The Smart Farm is 2,800 acres of large-scale lab powered by the TELUS network. Farming practices there include using AI to identify animals from the ground or air to more easily detect injuries and illnesses, measuring the protein content of grain, seeds, and crops in near real time through connected technologies, and tracking the precise state of the soil, air moisture levels, and current weather conditions across multiple fields from one place through connected field sensors. Farming's always been about efficiency, but man, that's a long way from rising at 4 a.m. to get an early start. And here's the kicker. The full economic potential of ag tech will only grow as the 5G spectrum continues to evolve. 5G means signals travel further and faster. Rural and remote connectivity explodes. That means farmers and ranchers can more easily apply the cutting-edge digital technologies that are only now being experimented with on the smart farm. You can learn more about all of this at ConnectingCanadaForGood.ca. All right, Hurley Burleyites, time for today's pod. Oh, and listen to Ray Martini's background music. It's so great. We've got another two-parter for you today. For part one, I'm so pleased to welcome Anami Paul, leader of the Green Party of Canada. We're going to find out a lot more about Anami over the next hour or so, but she's been involved in civic life since she was 12 years old, working as a page in the Ontario Legislature. She holds a Bachelor of Laws from the University of Ottawa and a Master in Public Affairs from Princeton University. Prior to being elected leader of the Greens this past October, Anami founded the Canadian Centre for Political Leadership and worked in several civic engagement and international affairs positions. We're going to talk about her life, the electoral positioning and prospects for the Greens, where she intends to take that party. We'll cover climate change, obviously, but we'll also talk about the impact of COVID on long-term care in this country an issue she's been very vocal about. Part two of the podcast is our ever-loving, ever-hating, ever-opinionated political panel with Scott Reed and Jenny Byrne. We have a lot to cover this week, too. More COVID strictures here in Ontario? Maybe. What's the status this week in the vaccine blame game? Last week, it seemed as if the provinces had rollout problems. This week, it's back on the feds and supply. We'll also have to talk a little bit about what's going on down in the States. Is it insurrection? Is it censorship? Is it big tech collusion? And where does the Republican Party go from here? Also, is there real blowback from all this for the Conservatives here in Canada? Or is that just Twitter echo chamber stuff? Anami Paul, thank you so much for being here with us on the Hurley Burley. It's an honor to have you here. Thanks for joining us. It is really great to be with you. I'm really looking forward to, uh, to this conversation. Me too. Me too. Where do we find you today? I'm in Toronto. <laughs> I'm Toronto? In Toronto. I'm in Toronto. <laughs> other than other than trips to uh, to Parliament uh, in the fall, I have been here. Uh, yeah, we might as well get that out of the way, right? Right away. Where have I been? Yeah. 
I have been in Toronto uninterruptedly uh, since uh, February of last year, uh, other than, as I said, trips to Parliament for press conferences. Uh, that's, uh, that's it. No, no trips to Barbuda or, or St. Bart's or, or anywhere else. I've, I've made a trip to the, to the supermarket and to St. Lawrence, and that's about it. Yeah, well, okay, you're safe. You're good. Yeah. You're clear. <laughs> so you haven't traveled anywhere. You've been stuck in Toronto uh, for the whole pandemic. How are you doing? I'm doing, uh, I'm doing better than a lot of people, and I'm really aware of that. You know, anyone who, um, anyone who has a, a network of friends and family knows that there are definitely, you know, I have people that have definitely been hit really hard that have lost their jobs. My brother actually was working out uh, in the oil patch in Alberta uh, when the pandemic uh, hit and his job dried up. Uh, and uh, we ha I haven't seen my mother for months now because she's 84, almost 85, and things are, you know, we, we're just not taking any chances with her. Uh, so, you know, those things are hard, but again, you know, I'm safe. I know where my kids are, and uh, I have this, this employment. It's not necessarily secure employment, but at least I have a job. And so I'm, um, and I'm just really preoccupied, I would say, more than anything. You know, I'm really thinking a lot about the people who... Uh, who aren't having it as easy as I am during this pandemic. Can I ask you, just because I'm feeling weird, can I ask you, do you feel a general weird low level of anxiety at all times through this period of time, or are you just sort of breezing through it? Because I'm feeling that low level of anxiety all the time. All the time, all the time. Yes, yes, I, I absolutely am. Absolutely. There's always a reason uh, to be slightly anxious about something. Uh, so yes, and even if you're someone who is fairly uh, stoic, I mean, it's, you know, it's, I've, I've definitely had, had, you know, my, my fair share of challenges. It, it, there's something about this moment that absolutely creates anxiety and you can feel it. My sister is, she's a creative, you know, she's a, an actor and a producer. And she says that a lot of people are just hanging on by a thread. Um, but in my case, I would just say exactly that. It's kind of like white noise in the background, just this uh, sense of, of anxiety all the time. Yeah. This, this is very, very much an anxious period for, for me. And I'm, I'm sure for, for everyone. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. So to the business at hand, um, I'm always interested. One of my favorite books about politics is a book called What It Takes, which was written about the people who ran for president in 1988 and about what kind of people end up thinking they should be the president of the United States and what they had to do to get to a point where they had a realistic prospect of being the president of the United States. What, what got you to this point of political leadership? Where do you come from? What's your route? I was born and raised in, uh, in Toronto, Toronto, T dot, I guess people call it now, or the six. And uh, my family comes from the Caribbean. They have other words for it in Saskatchewan. I know. <laughs> when, I'm talking, <laughs> when, I'm when I'm talking with people from out west or the north or, or out east, uh, I, I try to uh, really underline the fact that, yes, I was born and raised in Toronto. But my family comes from really, really tiny island. I mean, no one has tiny islands. No one has it on, on us for rural. 
Uh, my mother's island, uh, Nevis, has, it depends on the time of year, but between nine and 10,000 inhabitants. Every single person on the island in one way or another, uh, up until very recently, was a farmer. You pretty much, you know, ate what you grew. And so, and I spent, uh, my grandmother took, uh, took me and my brother down there for a year and a bit when we were kids to live, uh, just so we could get those, you know, small island, small town, rural values. So that is definitely part Excuse of Excuse me, enemy, isn't it? Isn't it one of the most beautiful places in the world? It is. <laughs> I won't lie. Yeah. It is. It is. It is. Yeah. Um, it's a. It's a. It's a. Um, a biosphere. You know, it's a protected biosphere. Uh, it is. It's only about thirty. You can drive around the whole island in about thirty minutes. So it's very tiny. Uh, it's quite un, un, undeveloped. Uh, it doesn't have a big um, deep seaport or a major airport. And so it's fairly inaccessible, which has help, also helped to protect it. So it is really, it is really a gorgeous uh, place. So, yeah. 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 And fun fact about it. I mean, I guess it's claims to fame. Um, Alexander Hamilton was born there and um, uh, it has the oldest Jewish cemetery in uh, the Western Hemisphere. And Oprah stayed there once. I don't know which one is the most interesting fact there, but uh, those are the claims to fame. <laughs> I know about it because there's a Four Seasons there. That's which right. My that's affluent Oprah friends stayed. sometimes <laughs> stay there, but I. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I have, but you know I what? With, with the Four Seasons, what happens is that it, they build it up a hurricane because they they built it right on the beach and all the you know all the locals know you don't build on a beach i mean it's beautiful but you don't do it so they build it on the beach and then a hurricane every five years or so completely devastates it they spend the next few years building it back up and this has been the cycle ever since the four seasons opened there so it's nice <laughs> if it's nice if you can get there between mm -hmm. hurricanes Okay, so I interrupted you on your route to political leadership because we, you know, Nevis is a nice sidebar, but that's obviously not a great launch pad for Canadian political leadership. <laughs> so what happened after Nevis? It kind of is because, you know, my, the values that my mom brought here are definitely, and my grandmother, they're definitely the foundation for me. Uh, they brought values of community. That was a very big thing. You, when you come from a small place, you absolutely have to count on your neighbors and they have to count on you and you feel accountable to your community. And so the expectation for me was whatever you do, and there really was no pressure on me to do any particular thing, but whatever I did, it somehow had to help the community, whichever community I was in. And so that's something that, I mean, I don't even know if it was, if it was a choice. I just always grew up feeling that way. And so everything that I've done, all the work I've done, all the studies I've done, I always had in mind that I was going to be doing something for the community, some kind of public service. And how did that end up in politics? Like you decided at a very young age that you were interested in politics and have remained interested in politics your whole life. Where did that come from? Where does that come from? You know, it's an interesting thing. I mean, because you have to ask yourself, what is it about politics that could have possibly been interesting to an 11 year old? Um, you know, but then again, I have some little cousins and nieces and nephews now who also are interested in politics. And it just seems to be the way that they were wired. Uh, I think part of it is, you know, my mom was a school teacher and she when we were um, we had to commute a very long distance to get to school because I was in one of the first French immersion programs in Toronto. 
and we would listen to CBC radio in the car. Uh, we weren't allowed to listen to anything else. Um, and we weren't allowed to watch television unless it was, uh, you know, 60 Minutes or the news or some kind of uh, documentary. And so I was exposed to it early. And I definitely understood very early on that being uh, that healthy government uh, definitely was part of a healthy society. I have always had a really strong respect for the role of government uh, in in society, so I think that I think that those were maybe maybe those give you some inkling into where the interest came from. Okay, so then you make another decision. Then you decide, but I'm not going to get involved in partisan politics. I'm going to lead third party engagement groups. Why that? Because of my early exposure to politics. Uh, and you know, I'm not going. To, I'm not singling anyone out, and there are exceptions to every rule. But as someone who uh, worked as a page in the Ontario Legislature, I worked as a page in the Senate of Canada. I worked as an intern for a year uh, um, in the Ontario Legislature through the Canadian Political Science Association. Uh, those early exposures to politics left me left it just crystal clear in my mind that politics should not be a lifetime career. Um, you could really tell the people who had only ever been involved in politics from a young age and hadn't done any other kind of, of work. Um, you could tell the people who had been in politics way too long uh, and had forgotten the reasons that they decided to go in uh, in the first place. And I never wanted to be one of those people. I left those experiences saying, this might be something that I might be interested in, but if I do it, it's going to be for a limited amount of time. It's going to be like a vocation. And then I'm going to do something else. And before I do it, I'm going to make sure I have a full life, you know, raise a family, have jobs, you know, get some experience, get some something outside of the bubble. Um, so that I have something to contribute. So that was that was why I avoided organized politics until I joined the Green Party. So let me summarize this. You were involved in politics and you met people like me. <laughs> and we not only turned you off the Liberal Party, we turned you off of politics in general. Your words, not mine. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it was just, let's just say it wasn't a turn off. Let's just say it was more of a cautionary tale. Uh, that's, that's, the way that, that's the way that I see it. I mean, it's exciting. It was exciting. I was, I was an intern in the, when I was an intern in the legislature, it was during the leadership race. The, um, the liberals were having their leadership race. Uh, and, yeah. um, you know, we, with the way that it works is you spend half of your time working uh, with one party and half of your time working with another. And so I was working, um, with a liberal during, during that leadership race. And it's really exciting, you know, it's exciting and, and whatnot, but you could see how it could easily become a game if you didn't have a, an anchor as to, you know, the, the policy reasons you want to do it. And, and so, yeah, that's definitely something sure. I wanted to avoid. And I had, I have been asked uh, at different times over the years uh, to run, but uh, I'm, I'm really happy that I did all the other things that I did before getting involved in politics. <laughs> okay. So nice then you decide you to get involved. It's nice. To yeah. Know. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much. We'll see if at the end of this, you resign your position. Um, <laughs> so so then after all that you choose the green party why do you choose the green party 
I, I lived abroad for uh, a number of, quite a number of years with my family. I worked, I, my first role abroad was working uh, for our government in global affairs in, in Belgium, our mission to the European Union. And I did a lot of things that, um, that kept, again, that kept me outside of organized politics, uh, a lot of, but all again, things really focused on, on community and, and, and public policy. And when I came back to Canada, I realized that for the first time in a long time, there was no impediment to me joining a party. And also given the things that I'd been working on when I was abroad, uh, it was really clear to me that the government was going to be playing a big role, um, that government had, was going to have a central role in dealing with the big challenges of our time. So I wanted to be part of a, a party. And I did, look, I did look at the parties again. I did look at the Liberals. I looked at the NDP. Um, I did not look at the Conservatives. Uh, I looked at, um, and I looked at the Greens. And I wanted to be part of a party where I thought I would have a voice. Um, I really am, am just appalled by how much power has been concentrated in the leader's office over the years in uh, the other parties. And I also wanted to be part of a party that didn't seem to be afraid of innovation. You know, I mean, these, these big things we're dealing with are going to require big ideas. And I think that when you have uh, too much control, I think that when you're focused too much on just self-preservation and self-perpetuation, that it can lead to, um, uh, it can lead to small thinking, you know, it can lead to small ideas. And I really, really wasn't interested in that. So uh, that's how I ended up with the Green Party. So let me postulate to you that as leader, you're going to find an interesting choice here. Because I would argue to you, as I argued to Elizabeth May uh, when she was on the show uh, before the last election, that the lack of central control in the leader's office in the Green Party and the lack of the relative diffusion of power throughout the party is a, is a luxury of a minor uncompetitive party, and it reflects itself in the relatively disorganized and incoherent campaigns that the Green Party has run. And that if you are going to operate as a competitive political party electorally, you'll need to assume more authority in the leader's office control over messaging and communications. Well, I hope that your theory will be put to the test because I want to get enough Greens elected so that we become an official party, so that we have a, a bigger voice. So we will be putting we will be putting our model to the test for sure. Um, I I will be the first person to say that there are definitely challenges that come with our model. There's no question, and there are days, man. <laughs> Even the fact that I use that word. There are days when I really, I wish I could just tell everyone what to do. You know, I really wish, I, and I really regret our model. Um, <laughs> I, I really, really, there are definitely days like that. Uh, that being said, I know that there is a balance. You know, we, we, have, we have strayed so far away from the, the model, you know, our, you know, the, let's, let's say the, the, the original model of our, our parliamentary democracy that we don't even recognize that there can be a balance. Um, you know, in the UK, Boris Johnson has a majority, um, you know, he has a huge majority, but he still has from time to time members of his caucus that go choose to vote another way. Do they do that every time? No. 
Are there some, um, some issues that are going to be, you know, whipped or confidence things? Yes. But he doesn't expect and would never expect that all of his MPs vote with him the same way every time and that they have no voice. So all we're saying is that um, first, the responsibility of our MPs is to their constituents. Um, we're elected by them, not by our parties. And then secondly, there has got to be some room for uh, discussion and dissension. Otherwise, as I said, um, you're stifling ideas. But, you know, we none of that, I would say, prevents having um, message discipline during a campaign, uh, having a, an organized uh, strategy uh, around communications. And I can tell you, I am definitely all for that. And so I really hope you're going to like what you see in the next election. Well, you know, I think that there's I, I genuinely believe that there's huge opportunity uh, for your party. I did believe that the last time, uh, too. Um, and I believe that the campaigns have been an impediment to getting as many votes as uh, <clears throat> as are potentially out there for the Green Party. So let me ask you this question. As leader, is it your objective, because I consider these things to be not entirely, but at some level mutually exclusive, is your objective to push the envelope as far as it can to open the Overton window, as they say, as wide as possible on climate change or to elect as many members of parliament as possible? I think that those things in the next election are going to be connected because, you know, the, the, uh, the opportunity we have through a green recovery uh, to really jumpstart our economy uh, to create the economy of the future uh, and in the long term, but in the short term, uh, to create exactly the kind of jobs that get you out of a recession, you know, that get you out of a, an economic uh, coma. Uh, you know, this is the greatest economic opportunity of our lifetime. And so did we expect to be here? Absolutely not. You know, I mean, did I think there would be this perfect set of circumstances where we would need a, a very uh, strong um, stimulus strategy to exit, uh, you know, a, a once in a century event? No. But given that we have the very best thing we can be spending our money on is definitely going to be. Um, investing in the green infrastructure, uh, clean tech, renewable energies, all of the things that create short-term and long-term jobs. And at the same time, help us to tackle the climate emergency in a real way. So that is, um, that is a story that I'm certainly happy to go around the country selling to people. It's a really good news story. It's a way for people to feel like they can do something uh, concrete about the climate emergency. Uh, and so... I don't think it's an either or. For me, the two big things that we should be talking about in the next election are completing our social safety net um, after all the lessons we learned during this pandemic. And then the second thing is um, how we are going to accelerate our move towards a net zero economy and take advantage of this, this, um, this economic opportunity. And I'll go even further and I'll say that if we don't take advantage of this economic opportunity, Canada is going to be left in the dust and we're going to lose um, the opportunity to uh, have a competitive edge. And it's the reason why all of the EU countries, why the UK, why East Asian countries um, are all investing in a green recovery. Okay. I've had uh, for decades now a hard time 
a difficult time. I correct myself. One of the things that bothers me is people use hard all the time now when difficult is a better word. But anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've had a difficult time placing the Green Party on an ideological spectrum. I know that years and years ago, there were a lot of small C conservatives who voted for the Green Party out of protest or out of other things. The Green Party has never seemed to want to declare itself as unabashedly progressive. For instance, had a very hard balanced budget positioning and had fiscal responsibility as a core sort of element of its, of its program. You sound to me like you are taking this thing to the left and that you are declaring the Green Party to be an unabashedly progressive force on the, on the left side of the spectrum. Am I right about that? The Green Party is the place that anyone should be if they're looking for the most progressive uh, policies in Canadian politics. Uh, that, that's, that has been the case for a very, very long time. Uh, that being said, you know, it's, there's nothing, again, that is incompatible between being uh, the most progressive party in Canadian politics and at the same time being responsible stewards of the economy. Uh, it's really tough sometimes to persuade. My God, you sound like a liberal enemy, Paul. My goodness, you sound like a liberal there. We, you know what? We, <laughs> you know, we are we are the we are the the hope of of the liberal party actually brought into action. You know, we um, we're the we're we're the the I say the logical conclusion for the policies when you're as I said when you're not afraid of when you're not just there to perpetuate your own existence. Um, and that is, you know, that is something that sets us apart and is always going to set us apart. Uh, and as you said, you know, it may be, as you said, because we're a small party and so we haven't had the reins of power. And so we don't know what it's like to lose them. But that being said, you know, we are focused on what are the most progressive, innovative, evidence-informed policies that we can put out on any particular issue, come what may. And so this is why we've been in the forefront of things like decriminalization of drugs. This is like the third rail for the other parties. Uh, and I'm here, as, as you said, you know, as, as, a, as a lawyer and a Prince, you know, Princeton educated policy analyst saying that this is where we need to go. Um, and you know, we said it first when we were alone and now the Canadian Police, um, um, Police Chiefs Association is saying that, Oregon is saying that out in BC, uh, but someone has to say it first. And it would be nice if it were the other parties, but it's not. And so that is the thing that sets us apart. And I would say that, you know, when you're looking for where to situate us on the political spectrum, it's, it's as, the, as the generator of the innovative ideas um, and the party that's not afraid uh, to say them first. And, uh, you know, as I said, come what may. Okay. What's wrong with Trudeau's climate policy? Oh, oh. That's the that's the Jewish mom in me coming out when I say, "Ugh," um, <laughs> but uh, you know, where to where to where where to begin with that one? It's um, we had this uh, town hall. Uh, we had this town hall with David Suzuki and uh, Elizabeth May the other night, and uh, he did a great job of laying it out himself. Which is, I mean, I'll just say plainly, the climate plan is too little, too late. That's that's the first problem. Uh, the second problem is that it, it is it is an insult to the ambition that people in Canada have said they want on the climate. 
There's just been a couple of, of, of uh, surveys out this week. I think one from Nanos and one from Abacus saying that despite everything we've been through during this pandemic, people still want us to be a global leader on the, on the, on the pandemic. So this plan is the kind of plan you put out. That's motherhood bullshit, enemy. If you get down to the brass tacks of what people are prepared to do, it's not that dramatic. Well, so yeah, it. they'll agree that Canada should play a leadership role and disagree yeah. that they should pay any cost of living consequence for that leadership role. Well, that, and that's a lack of political leadership. That's a lack of political leadership because if we had consistent messaging from our government that you can do this, we can do this, not only can we do this, but this is something that is an opportunity. You know, this is the part that will always confuse me. We have an opportunity now. We're not talking about something that is going to um, break the back of Canada or that is going to cause us to, to enter into, a, into a, an endless spiral of sacrifice. We're talking about taking advantage of an opportunity. Uh, so I, I'm confused. But um, the Liberal government's plan uh, is, a, is a plan that was out of date um, almost five years ago. On the very same day that uh, the Prime Minister was announcing that we were going to try to meet a target, um, the target of 30%, that we were hoping to meet it. And maybe if we were very lucky and the provinces co cooperated, we might exceed it. Um, the very same day that he was saying that, 27 countries of the European Union were announcing that they were going to commit to a 55% reduction in greenhouse gases. And the UK, which has a conservative government, they committed to a 68% reduction. So what we've said here is we can't be as ambitious, uh, we can't show as much leadership as all of our international peers, and um, that Canada should, you know, you know, should um, should settle for not doing enough. And I think, as I said, that's an insult to people in Canada, and um, they're being bamboozled. And I would say, don't let yourself be bamboozled. If you're going to support this thing, at least know that it means that Canada has committed to something that is far below its international obligations and shows no leadership whatsoever. Well, what if I was to put to you that whether or not it is sufficient, and it probably is not, um, whether or not it is sufficient, it is the most ambitious environmental platform that one could get elected on. If I was to say to you, that I consider the carbon price announcement to be the most courageous thing that the Trudeau government has done and the first time they've actually put their political life on the line for something that they believe in and that they may not survive it, that it will be an anchor that they are carrying around in the election campaign. Um, so I guess, what I, I guess what I'm saying is you're dealing with the art of the possible here. And is it not possibly the case that Trudeau has put together what's possible in Canada? First, I would say that uh, true political leadership requires that you rise to the, uh, the necessity of the moment, that you rise to uh, an historic moment if you happen to find yourself in it. I can't say whether the Liberals or the Prime Minister would have hoped to be here, but here we are. We have very little time to deal with something that is an existential crisis, and you just have to rise to the occasion, uh, come, you know, come what may. 
And I will say that, you know, this is really more than anything. It's a communications issue. It's a communications issue because all over the world, we ha governments have uh, been put to the test. They have been, they've had to fight elections um, with their plans. Uh, the conservative government, they fought the last election with, their, with this plan. This wasn't just sprung on people in the UK, for instance. In New Zealand, all across the, the, uh, the European Union, with many different kinds of governments, conservative governments, um, more progressive governments, all different kinds, they have fought elections uh, with ambitious climate plans, and they've won. And uh, if, the, if the prime minister is going into the next election with any kind of uncertainty about whether this will wash, a lot of it is down to him and the fact that he has had almost six years to give really clear messaging and, and put in place really ambitious plans and really share a vision of the future with people in Canada about what this would look like and why it's a good and necessary thing. And he failed to do so. Uh, he's waited until the very last minute um, knowing that he's going to go into the election with this plan, but without having proved that it can work. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's something that, you know, he, he, has to, uh, he has to reckon with. But I know that elections can be won on exciting, ambitious, and doable climate plans. Okay. If you, if you are going to make a big move electorally, you're going to have to crush the NDP to do it. What was wrong with them? Why didn't you just join them? It's not a question of, you know, I, I like to focus on, on us as opposed to, uh, as opposed to the others. Uh, but I think that's a fair, always a fair question to, to ask, whether it's them or any of the other parties. I mean, the, there has to be a reason for the Green Party to exist. You know, and it's something we, have, we should always, we should ask ourselves on a regular basis. And I mean, I, I shared with you a bit of the reason that I think the Green Party should exist and why I joined the Green Party as opposed to the others. And of course, there were people telling me, lots of people, and, and you know, some of them you know, spend a lot of time in politics saying, Annie, what are you doing? What, what, are, you, what are you doing? Why them? And it's, it's really because the, the space, I believe the space that the Greens occupy in politics, only they occupy. I do not believe uh, that we would have a party talking about decriminalization. I do not believe that universal pharmacare would be on the agenda the way that it is now if we hadn't been talking about it even prior to the 2015 election alone. I do not believe that guaranteed livable income would be something that now is you know, top of mind even within the Liberal caucus. It's their top policy priority issue. Um, and so those are things that, that we do. And we do alone. In terms of the, the NDP, there are significant uh, policy differences and there are significant um, differences in the way that we approach politics in general. Uh, they do not have a credible climate plan. And I think that that is just a, a red line for anyone who cares about the future. Um, and they are a party, as I said, where the power is too centralized and that is not a good thing either. Um, and, you know, I could go, I could go on. We have, we just have some significant policy differences and more than anything, they like the liberals, uh, have, have run out of original ideas. It's been a long time since I have heard an original idea come out of either political party. And, uh, you know, we've become the factory where they go to, you know, pick up their, the latest, the latest good off the assembly line and use their, use their stronger, uh, network and, and, uh, stronger uh, communications uh, to sell it as their own. Um, so those are, those are things that, that separate our parties and why I think we need to exist. 
Okay, just because I have my own legacy defend out to defend, I will I will note that Kathleen Wynne brought in cap and trade, pharmacare, and a guaranteed annual income to Ontario. Um, I'm a federal politician. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, Kathleen- I, you know, yeah, I, I, enough, enough, yeah. Uh, yeah. But no, I mean, Kathleen Wynne did some some very important things uh, during her time in Ontario. Very, very important things, and it, it's it's proof that there 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 is still the possibility to to do um, important new things. And so, yes, but as I said, I'm a federal politician, so my my comments are are laser focused on that level of government. Okay, cool. Um, and, and I would say, it's real back to you. When is the last time? Can you point to the last time uh, there was an original idea that came out of uh, came out of uh, either of those parties? I mean, I'm I'm struggling to find one from this, uh, you know, the the most recent sitting of Parliament. Uh, carbon border adjustments—that's uh, something people point to, but of course, that was something that, as a as a lowly leadership candidate, I was uh, the first person to talk about that, and uh, and it worked its way up the chain. A guaranteed livable income, a universal pharmacare, um, long-term care homes, and uh, taking the profit out of those. I mean, those are all things that originated with us. So if you can point to one original idea that they've had, I would love to hear it. Well, as Bob Dylan says in uh, Brownsville Girl, if there's an original idea out there, I could use it right now. Um, (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I'm going to take that. I'm, I'm, I'm banking that one for use later on. Exactly. So listen, because you're a national leader, let me ask you another tough question. And it isn't a gotcha question. I'm generally looking for ways to approach this. I had Kathleen Petty, a CBC journalist from Calgary on last week, and we were talking about Western Canada and Alberta in particular. What do you say to Albertans or Saskatchewanians about climate? Uh, I tell them that from the perspective of our party, it's so important that they know that we care and that they are our primary concern. Um, and I say this as someone who, as I mentioned, is the the sister of a brother who was working as a roughneck out in the oil patch in Alberta up until very recently, because that's where the highest paying jobs uh, are. Uh, that's where he was able to get insurance uh, for health insurance for his family. Um, you know, that was the opportunity. And, uh, you know, he was he spent months at a time away from his family to do that job. So this is, you know, I'm not talking about some corporate executive out there. I mean, he was out there on a crew in the patch. So please know that this is personal. Please know that uh, that I care personally about your future and our party does and that this is what it is all about. And then my second message would be don't let yourself be fooled. Don't let yourself um be manipulated because what is happening here is that the government in out in Alberta uh, and the federal government, they're mixing up uh, the needs of industry with your needs and they're prioritizing the needs of industry over your needs. Uh, These are people who will allow the last drop of oil to be sucked out of Alberta and the last dollar to be made before they consider what happens to you next. 
And I'll remind everyone uh, who was alive during that period about the collapse of the cod fisheries out east. And the fact that up until the last second, um, those, those, um, those uh, Newfoundlanders were told by industry and by government that, uh, that they, they were fine, that everything was fine, that there was no problem, and that there were just people who were trying metaphor, to take away their livelihood, right? And then it collapsed, and then their communities collapsed and were displaced. And this is the track that we are heading on in Saskatchewan in Alberta, where the companies will take the last drop of profit, and then they'll pick up sticks. And they're not going to think for a second what happens to you. And so this is the time to diversify the economy. This is the time to make sure that um, the fair share of clean tech money, renewable energy money goes into those provinces. They could be world leaders in those areas. The jobs in those sectors pay more money, they're more stable, and they don't require big retraining. 45% um, of the jobs in those sectors in the US are taken by people without even a college degree. So please don't let yourself be manipulated into, um, you know, ransoming your own future and insist that your government plan responsibly for the end of, of fossil fuel, because it is coming. It's an irreversible decline and it's coming. Okay. Let's switch to COVID if we could, because you've talked a lot about COVID and, um, and you've put a big, you've put a big emphasis on that. Um, what are your thoughts overall on how the country has handled the pandemic? I think that we have done some things well, and I think that there are things that uh, we, we should have done better and things that we could be doing better now. Uh, it was really encouraging, really inspiring, actually, first focusing on the people in this country. It was really inspiring and still is really inspiring to see the ways in which people have been willing to, to sacrifice in order to protect their communities. Uh, you know, time after time, they're asked, you know, what are you willing to do? And pretty much the answer has been consistently, whatever it takes. Uh, people are willing to consider even curfews now uh, in, you know, the majority of people. And so that has been really inspiring the way that people have said, we, we are willing to do what it takes to protect, uh, protect people. Um, uh, it was really encouraging to see the amount of collaboration and cooperation that happened between levels of government in the early days of the pandemic. It was really encouraging to see uh, the, the cross-partisan cooperation as well uh, within Parliament. And so that was good. Um, what's been really discouraging is to see how quickly it's uh, disappeared, how quickly it's dissipated. Um, and how we're back to the usual kind of uh, shenanigans and hyper-partisanship and uh, a lot of jockeying going on right now, even though the second wave is worse than the first. I think that our national shame has been our treatment of long-term care residents. Uh, we have the worst record amongst wealthy countries, um, OECD, not just OECD countries, but amongst uh, wealthy economies for the proportion of deaths in long-term care. It's about double, <laughs> double uh, what it is in other wealthy countries. We have had over 10,000 long-term care residents die directly from COVID and then probably the same number over dying from uh, the lack of care caused by the pandemic and the understaffing. So that is a scandal. Uh, it is a national shame and we could be doing something about that tomorrow if we wanted to. Uh, the experts have told us exactly what we need to do. All that's left is to do it. 
What if I said to you that before COVID, before anybody was dying of COVID, that those fucking subsidized private sector homes were a disgrace already and a national, a national disgrace already, and nobody seemed to care? This is, a, this is you know, this is what, what I call an original sin. You know, the fact that long-term care was ever, was ever um, uh, taken outside of our principle of universal access to public health care was always the problem. And as someone who spent a lot of time living uh, in the United States and, and being exposed to their public, sorry, their uh, healthcare system, uh, my first uh, son was born down there and there were some complications. Um, I was actually on bed rest for, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, this is the first time I've shared this story. Uh, so you heard it here first, but my son, you know, he, I was a first year uh, student at Princeton um, when I got pregnant. And uh, I spent, had to spend three months on, on bed rest uh, during that first year. And so I had a very deep exposure to the healthcare system down there. And it is terrifying. You know, when you put profit into healthcare, definitely corners are cut. And when you cut corners in something like healthcare, people die. And so that's what we're seeing. Four to five, you know, the, the death toll, the death rate is, um, is four to five times higher in for-profit care. You're four to five times more likely to die in for-profit care. It never should have been in the system. We have absolutely got to get it out of the system. We know this, you know, we know this, of course, as, as people in Canada. So um, we're calling for that. You know, it, that's a, that is, but I have to say, honestly, that's a long-term, uh, not a long-term, a medium-range thing. Because we have people dying today because of what we're not yeah. doing today. Yeah. And so the fact that our yeah, premier can speak day after day um, and our premiers can speak day after day about whatever they're talking about uh, in their daily press conference and not be talking about the hundreds of our long-term care residents that are dying, uh, you know, in each, well, in, well, I, it, it just leaves me speechless. And so this is something that we're going to have to reckon with. Um, I feel like it's, it's a struggle for the soul of our country. And, uh, you know, it's something that we are going to be talking about every single day until there is resolution uh, to, to this. Okay, you, you want a Fed Prof meeting about this, right? A First Minister's meeting about this? Just about this. I don't want a phone call. Mm. I don't want it as one of the agenda items, uh, you, know, that, that's, you know, that's just there amongst other things. This is something that, 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 um, that demands um, a, a dedicated, urgent meeting of our First Ministers to talk about what they are going to get off the phone or the Zoom call that moment and turn to their officials and say, do this tomorrow, right? And what should that be? Yeah, we have spoken. What should that be? Exactly. I'm going to tell you right now, because, you know, when we say these things, there's one thing, opposition is one thing, right? But the, go the goal um, and the objective of a party should always be to propose concrete solutions. I'm really about that. I'm not just here to, you know, say for shame for political points. I'm here to propose solutions. Mm -hmm. And so we've spoken in the last week, we've had four emergency town halls with the leading experts in the country on long-term care and infectious disease, um, epidemiologists, um, biostatisticians, you know, the registered nurses associations. Here's what they've told us. In unanimity, we need to increase um, the rate of vaccinations within long-term care and they should be first in the line. And this is also what our national 
um, Commission on uh, Immunization has also recommended NACI. Uh, we, put, we put the vaccines in hospitals as opposed to in long-term care, even though over 75% of the deaths from COVID have been happening in long-term care. So accelerate the rate of vaccination in long-term care and put long-term care homes at the front of the line. Rapid testing for the staff, the family, and uh, long-term care residents until they get their vaccines. Um, increasing the staffing and the training for, uh, the, um, uh, um, for the long-term care homes. And this is something they did in Quebec. You know, we had time between the first wave and the second wave to do that. In Quebec, they hired and trained 10,000 new staff. And so their rates are a lot lower than Ontario's, for instance. Um, we also but Ontario got an iron ring. Ontario got an iron ring. I call that the donut ring. Honestly, I'm trying, I was trying to think of the most like <laughs> what's the most what's the most poorest thing you can you can think of. You know, I mean that's what, that's all I can think of. It's the donut ring. I mean this is this is this so so and also we uh, we've been told over and over again again in unanimity by the experts. You need to have four hours of care, regulated care for each residence. And you need to make sure <clears throat> that there's more separation between residents too. So these are things that uh, if we began today, and many of these things we can be begin today would save lives tomorrow and the next day. And as someone whose dad died in uh, the, the home that now has the worst rate of infection of any long-term care home in Ontario, uh, and um, he died during the first wave of the pandemic uh, in that home. Uh, I'm telling you that every life is worth saving. And so there's no point in putting this off and saying, let's work on the long term. And yes, we need national standards. Absolutely. But that's not the thing that is going to change the situation on the ground today. Um, and we need something that's going to change it. So those are concrete things. They can be done. These are the things that are saving lives in other countries. Um, the only thing that's missing, and we've heard this from Dr. Shikari, Dr. Sidna, I'm giving you the names of the people that everyone sort of has been hearing from these days. Yesterday, Dr. Shikari was saying that, again, all that is missing is the political will. And they have all said that. All that is missing is the political will to do what is necessary. And, and let me ask you if you could isolate where the political will is weakening. Is it financially or is it fear of taking on these private interests that own these homes? It's at both levels of government, uh, our political uh, leaders, and I'm, I'm spe you know, speaking specifically about the, the governments at both levels, they, they don't seem to want uh, to touch this. You know, it, it is something that I don't know that it's, it's so much that they're afraid of the, those vested interests, um, so, as so much as that neither, of, neither level wants to be touched by this. Um, we have a federal government that is seems to be just, you know, craving an election within the next few months. Um, and if we really stop for a second to acknowledge uh, the fact that we have lost uh, over 10,000 of our most vulnerable um, um, Canadians uh, during the space of, of seven or eight months, uh, it could topple the government. It's the kind of thing that could topple a government. And so they just don't want to talk about it at all. And the, the provincial governments seem to be just fine with that because they know that it could topple them as well. Um, these arguments about jurisdiction are ridiculous. Uh, the prime minister announced his commitment to a universal childcare program. Last I heard, uh, education was a provincial responsibility, yet he has, hasn't hesitated 
to say that he's going to be bringing that in. So we, you know, we can't, we, he can't use that as an excuse, but he doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to be associated with it. He just wants to be associated with the vaccines um, that, you know, we have the record number in the world of vaccines per capita. He wants to be associated with the Serb and, and with, um, with the, the, the Lulus. Do you know that expression? The Lulus? No, no. What's Lulus that? Are, are the hand, the, you know, the handouts, the, um, you know, the sweeteners, it's like, it's, it's a term for artificial sweeteners. Uh, so, oh, really? Yeah. I'm a pure sugar person. So yeah, <laughs> yeah me, too. <laughs> me, me too. Absolutely. So, but, right. and so that's it. That's it. He, he wants to stand in front of Rideau Hall and, and say that, uh, you know, we have vaccines coming every day and there's good news about this and there's good, this is just bad news and no government uh, focused on their self-preservation wants to be associated with bad news if they can avoid it. Um, but in this case, uh, not talking about it, not moving on it is is deadly. And all that's left, uh, quite honestly, is for the public to mobilize because we've given our governments at both levels the chance to do the right thing. They have not done it. And uh, I believe the only thing that's going to get a change is sustained public pressure. So for every Canadian that wants to be able to look at themselves in the mirror after this and know that they did something to prevent these deaths, um, of people who have, you know, given a lot to our country and they're at the end of their lives uh, and they need our protection. Uh, I'm telling them that they need to act and they need to put pressure on the government to act. I last, <clears throat> we've all seen, well, you and I, I've read interviews you've done and other things. So I know that you and I have seen and been appalled by the same things. Um, uh, in society as uh, that the pandemic has revealed whether it's the precarity of work for so many people whether it's the underpayment of our frontline health professionals whether it's poverty in the country um, in I would say in the late spring early summer I was quite excitedly optimistic that some of these things were actually going to get seriously addressed that we had put things in the window now that couldn't be ignored long-term care that had to be fixed and addressed. I have to say, sitting here in January of 2021, I'm much less wildly optimistic about that. And I'm becoming pessimistic that we're going to fall back into exactly the same thing we were doing before, that the forces of the status quo are stronger than the forces of change. This is the question. I, I, have, I still see some signs of hope, not so much in our political class as, as in the people. Again, even after having been in this pandemic for such a long time and having made so many sacrifices, uh, the, the most recent polling is, is telling us that people are still willing to do more if it's going to protect their communities. And so I believe that that kind of spirit of community, that kind of understanding uh, that there is a chance that that um, can take hold, take root, uh, and really change, uh, not ch and, and really provoke the kind of societal transformation that we still need to see. I don't think that we can be left untouched by what has happened. I think people have really liked uh, what they saw in terms of what can get done when there is less of that, that um, hyper-partisanship. Um, they, and they want to see more of it. I know that people are less tolerant of uh, these kind of jurisdictional excuses for inaction in the face of the kind of things that you, you mentioned. 
Um, they're just, you know, the, the Federation was designed to make us stronger. You know, it was never intended to be a barrier to urgent action. And so the fact that, uh, you know, that it has been used in that way, I think is a really grave threat to the Federation. I think it's a graver threat than any kind of encroachments that people are talking about, that it's being used as an excuse not to do things. Um, and so I don't think people will tolerate that anymore. And so that gives me encouragement. Um, I have really been dismayed to see the, uh, the politics creeping back into everything, uh, even though we are in a, a wave that is worse than the first and the, the, you know, the death and the sickness continues. Uh, we, we have to be, we have to be, as I said, we have to be up to this moment. You know, we have to, we have to be up to this moment and this is one that requires us to put those things aside and to really work together on behalf of people in Canada. And so we're, we're there to do that. Uh, it's always hard for me, I have to say, to be critical in this moment because I, I don't want uh, any sense of partisanship to prevent the Prime Minister or Aaron O'Toole or Jagmeet Singh from reaching out to me and saying, let's work together on this, you know? So, but at the same time, we have to call them to account when they're not doing what they should be doing. So it's, it's, a, it's a balance, but I would tell you to, to keep the hope, you know, keep, keep the hope and believe in the people, believe that, you know, they want us to do better going forward, that they want to make sure that people who weren't protected uh, will be protected um, and that they'll vote for parties that make it clear that they're gonna make that a priority. Um, that's what's happened in other countries. And I think that it can happen here, so. That's where I take my. That's where I take my uh, my energy and uh, and uh, inspiration from. Thanks, and it's a good wellspring of that because people are more demanding of change than than the political system is right now. I don't, my polling would certainly indicate that. Oh, I've saved, your, what, we're almost your, out. Of, what's your polling telling you? The polling telling me that there's never been more support for um, more activist government than there is than there is right now, and that there is significant support for things like uh, guaranteed annual income, higher minimum wages, efforts to reduce wealth inequality. Um, and certainly, uh, people are alerted now to the precariousness of work that uh, younger generations face in a way that they weren't aware of that before. That's right. So That's, there's right. A, there, it, That's right. Well, everyone, know, if, even if it's not you, uh, this pandemic, you know, was so comprehensive that everyone knows someone who was just immediately thrown right to the brink when the pandemic hit, whether it was, you know, um, a student that, you know, or someone who's a gig worker or someone who is self-employed or an artist or whatever. Everyone knows someone who who just has had a terrible time of it. And, you know, you, you know, even if it's not you, we don't that's not that's not how we are. We, we're part of a community. And, and this has made, made something that was maybe, I guess, a bit invisible, very clear to people. Everyone has a story that they can tell. And so that's the big thing. And I would say also that I know for sure after this pandemic that people in Canada, um, maybe this is going to be a point of disagreement between us, I don't know, but I believe people in Canada are ambitious. I believe that we want to um, do big things. I believe that we, we, we have what it takes to... Um, still create new universal programs to actually close the safe social safety net. 
people want that and they want to be proud of proud of Canada again. You know, we don't want to be talking about deaths and long term care. We don't want to be talking about how people are sleeping in tents in our cities um, and dying of opioid overdoses. I mean, we want our government to be ambitious on our behalf. Uh, that's what that's what your polling tells you, I think. And that's what I feel as well. I have abused your time um, and I'm going to have to give you up very soon. And I have, based on personal experience and observation, one last question to ask you. You are both black and a woman. How do you expect that to affect your political career? And Jewish. <laughs> and for, you know, for, for it's, I mentioned that as well, because there are actually very few uh, Jews in federal politics. I think there are only seven elected Jewish people in, in federal politics. So how do I expect? There used to be an unofficial quota. There used to be an unofficial quota of one in the cabinet. In Mr. Trudeau's time, senior, um, you know, uh, if Herb Gray was going in, somebody had to go out. There we go. These are the, you know, these are, these are, these are the things that we can't forget and also things that we shouldn't assume are no longer the case. You know, this, it's very fragile. All the progress is, is very fragile. I, um, I would love to believe that me being elected uh, to this role permanently shatters that glass ceiling. Uh, but we, we've seen, <clears throat> excuse me, even in recent history, how, you know, we, there was a moment where we had almost parity uh, at the provincial level um, with the premiers, female and male premiers, and now that's that's gone. We have we have ten provinces, three territories, and and one um, you know one federal leader. And of those fourteen leaders, only one is a woman. And of those fourteen leaders, uh, only one um, uh, is a, is a person from a, a minority group. There's um, there's a Métis leader. And so this is where we are after we thought that we had, we had dealt with those things permanently. So in, in my case, I, I know being who I am is very inspirational to a lot of people. It gives them a sense that politics is not something for other people, that it's somewhere they can imagine themselves. Uh, it gives them a sense that this is truly a country where there are no limits uh, to what you can achieve. Um, so that is a good thing for politics in general, because there's been a lot of disengagement, particularly of young people in politics, be exactly because they don't see the diversity that, um, that they see amongst their cohort. Um, and one thing that people should know is that people in Canada are just as willing to vote for people of color as they are for, for the, you know, the typical white male that they imagine in politics. They're, you know, the barriers are mostly within the parties themselves finding good candidates and running them in winnable ridings. If you run in a winnable riding, you're just as likely to win. So I'm hoping that the parties will do their, their part uh, as well. We're definitely working to do ours. Um, I hope that people in terms of the Green Party will see that given my background, uh, given you know, my humble beginnings, that there are things that I care about just as passionately as the climate. I think it's easier for people to understand that when I talk about social policy, um, racial inequality, um, you know, helping to, to close our wealth gap. Those are things that, that I have personal lived experience with. And so they're things that I, I want to make a difference uh, in, in changing. So, yes, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I definitely also know that if I do a bad job, I'm going to be the person who ruined it for every black woman for a generation. <laughs> 
that's how these things go. It's completely not fair, but I'm totally aware. I'm totally aware, you know? Um, I'll just be like, oh, we gave those black women a chance and look at what they did. <laughs> so, well, so I mean, that, 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 that is the way a lot of people will judge it. And, sure, you know, and, for sure. Even the premiers, but, right? The female premiers. I remember making that point in a tweet and there were the, just this whole bunch of wave of comments saying, well, we tried women. Fat lot of good that did us, you know, we tried women. Why would we ever try women again? <laughs> so, yeah. So, but I, I think they're missing Rachel Notley in Alberta. <laughs> well, my, my experience with Kathleen was that uh, conceptually women aren't a huge problem. And as long as you're perfect enemy, you will not face blowback because you're a woman. But should you prove to be anything less than flawless, you will, I suspect, be judged more harshly than a white male in your position would have been. Correct. <laughs> that is absolutely correct. It's, um, again, it's an enormous pressure. Um, there's really nothing that I can do about it, but that is, that is absolutely the case. You know, I, I love, I love um, sports films. Uh, you know, again, something, something new, something I haven't mentioned before, but I love sports films and I love the film Friday Night Lights. Have you ever seen it? I have. Uh, Friday, I have. Friday Night Lights with Billy Bob Thornton. And uh, if you haven't seen it, it's a classic. It's excellent. Anyways, there's this line where yeah, it is. the coach is talking to his team. They've taken a knee and it's the beginning of the season. And Billy Bob Thornton says to them, he's the coach. He says, can you be perfect? You know, can you be perfect? And that's the line. And so that is the question that I wake up basically every day asking myself today, you know, can I be perfect? And I, yeah. I know I can't be, but I'm going to try my best. And I do want to make things easier for the next person that comes behind me. So uh, I am going to really try to do my best to honor the role that I am in, uh, really commit the time to it that it deserves. And, uh, you know, and when it's, as I said, when the time is right, uh, make place for someone else, because this is not something for life. This is something you do until it's time to move on and you make space for someone else. Well, thank you for coming on the show. And I wish you the best of luck, genuinely, the best of luck. And go out there and make some noise and shake things up. Make a difference. Need one. Thank you very much. This was, this was a lot of fun. I really, I really enjoyed this. And uh, I hope uh, maybe after the next election, I mean, you haven't said when you think it's going to be, but do you think it's going to be in the spring? I'm getting a little less certain about that uh, as the uh, vaccine rollout looks a little murkier, but I had certainly thought it was going to be the spring up until now. And uh, the events of today, the cabinet shuffle in Ottawa seem to make that more likely. Well, if it is in the spring or whenever it happens, uh, I hope you'll invite me back after that. You can be ruthlessly honest about our communications about, you can tell me I told you so. <laughs> or whatever else, but yeah, I, it would be fun to come back and uh, have a have a proper debrief, a no holds barred debrief with you about uh, you know oh, how you oh. think we did. Uh, hopefully, we'll be clinking glasses over the uh, uh, smoking Hulk of the NDP. <laughs> that is an image I will keep in my mind for the whole day. You know, boy, you can really paint a picture with words. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. All right. Thank you. Thanks. People are always telling us to be safe nowadays. Hope you're safe. Be safe. Stay safe. 
CN, our sponsor, does not need to be told. Safety is nearly an obsession at CN. It sort of has to be. When you have massive locomotives hauling millions of tons along thousands of miles of track, from the Atlantic to the Pacific to the Gulf of Mexico, playing games around trains or getting in their way never goes well. Ever. So CN preaches safety to all its employees. Meetings at CN always start with talk about safety. The company's experts do constant risk assessments along its routes. They test hundreds of thousands of miles of steel track a year. CN sends teams of specialists to towns and cities across North America, training tens of thousands of firefighters and other emergency personnel on how to deal with the dangerous goods trains sometimes carry. And the railway provides first responders with a special mobile app that lets them view the contents of rail cars simply and quickly. Most people don't realize it, but CN has its own police force, real badge-carrying peace officers who spend a lot of their lives working to prevent collisions or other tragic occurrences at crossings. Yes, some people are still tempted to trespass onto tracks or beat oncoming trains, which is always a really terrible idea. Because of their mammoth proportions and the laws of inertia, locomotives always look like they're traveling slower than they really are, and they can take a long time to stop. If a train hits a truck or a car, the truck or car loses every single time. I could go on from here, but you get the idea. When the people at CN stay, say stay safe, they mean business. Hey, Jenny. Hey, Scott. Good morning. Hey, Dave. Go Habs go. I'm digging the jersey. Absolutely. This is uh, Hockey Week in Canada, is it not? Indeed. Who's on the back of that jersey? Matt Snazland. Matt Snazland. The Little Viking. The Little Viking. And I'm hoping somebody pops up with a few Matt Snazland-type goals this year. Um, you know, but Scott, and, I'm, and by the way, I should compliment both of you on how you look. I, I'm my usual informal self. You both look lovely today. <laughs> Well, we're both going to go on television later to talk about the <laughs> shuffle. Jenny's wearing. Oh, I see. A, uh, so you wouldn't dress up for the pod, but for television. For television, that's the real yeah. medium, Dave. Yeah, this is just talking, talking in the treehouse. Are you talking about CTV during the day, cable? Yeah, yeah. Is there that be, television? There'll be dozens of people watching us. Yeah, is that yes. real television? I get tens of fans, and um, my mom my mom PVRs every day, all day long, in the hopes that she won't miss the six seconds that I'm on CTV reliably every day or two. Oh, my God, Scott was on. Scott was on between 12.03 and 12.07. And, um, well, they cut away from him, but he was there for a second. I'm positive. Oh, my God. Scott, you were telling us before we got going that you had a dream the other <laughs> night that you feel compelled to share with us. Yeah. Yeah. I had a weird dream. I know people are going, oh, Jesus, where are we going now? No, don't worry. I'm not <laughs> humping Donald Trump or something. Um, you know, I uh, I had this strange dream. I had this dream. So, um, and, you know, usually my dreams are... You know, like I'm riding a donkey across a desert. Suddenly I'm sucking on a violin and my pants are off. And I'm like, hmm, uh, how do I interpret that? Right. I go to the Internet and it says, you know, please, you know, put yourself in prison immediately. But I um, I had this very lucid 
strange dream. And the dream was that I, um, actually, I can't remember the, the beginning, of it, but I, I'm basically, I'm thrust into the prime minister's office. So I'm at Langevin, but it's not Langevin as it is now, because you've been there recently. It's f physically different than it was um, during our days, like getting on to 20 years ago. Um, but it was Langevin of old, and I was back in my old office, and um, and I'd been. Was the bottle in. still where you left it? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> all the uh, that's right, and the cyanide capsules were still taped to the bottom of the desk. Uh, the I'm in this office, and and there's a woman. It's not Katie. It's not Katie Telford, but there's just some woman who appears to be in charge of me. And I, in this dream, don't look like me. I can see myself in the dream. It's like I'm watching the dream. I am an older, taller, grayer gentleman who has ball, who's balding. Like I'm like a, and and so like I'm like a fully realized character. But I'm thinking about myself, so I'm kind of in and out of this thing. And I'm I'm like you know you've got to, you've got Jenny. To are you as scared as I am right now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> wait till you hear this. Uh, no, there's nothing uh, There's nothing creepy or sexy about this dream. Um, I am too old to have sex dreams. They're just, you know, basically, even in my sex dreams, I fall asleep and roll over. But I, um, I, I, I'm this older guy, and this woman is saying to me, but it's not a person I know, but in the dream world, this person is, I guess, the chief of staff. It's the authority. The prime minister is Trudeau. And I'm told, look, you know, we've got to get going. You've got to move this thing. And I'm like, yep, yep. And I'm just like, but I'm feeling anxious in the dream because I'm like, I, I, look, I'm, I'm eager to start this. I'm happy to be here. I'm going to do my best. Um, but I've got this appointment that, that, that was, I'm, I'm apologizing because my appointment was, was, was set before the prime minister tapped me to come back in and help out. So I've got, I got to go to this appointment and I'm going to a doctor's appointment, I guess, naturally, since I'm an old bent gray man and I'm going to this doctor's appointment and then I get to the appointment and I'm freaking out in the in the dream because the whole time I'm in the doctor's office, it's long and it's delayed and I, I can't get out of the doctor's office and it's going on and my anxiety level is going through the roof and I'm like, I gotta get back to work, I gotta get back to work. And I keep telling people like, I gotta get back to work and I'm calling people and I'm like, okay, well just, just like, and for some reason, Deborah, who used to be my assistant 199 years ago was there. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Okay, well, just tell them I'm going to be right there. Jesus, tell them I'll be right there. So then I finally, I just leave the doctor's office without the appointment. I get in the car and suddenly I'm going up and down hills in the countryside, like where I grew up, like in Prince Edward County. I'm going up and down these sort of like hills, these like county roads. And I'm going, and I'm going really fast. And then all of a sudden I crest this one hill. I come up over the rise and the car goes airborne. And I'm in the air and I'm going, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. I'm in the air. Look how high I am. And I'm losing control. I've got my hands on the steering wheel and I'm like, I'm losing control of the car. I'm losing and the car is turning. And then I land and when the car lands, it smashes and it rolls over and I'm in the car all smashed up. And I'm like, I got to get out. I got to get to work. And I'm in the car. Like finally I roll out of the car and then I'm like, wait a minute. And then I have that lucid thing, you know, like where sometimes you become conscious that you're in a dream. It, like, and all of a sudden I'm standing next to this car and I'm like, my shoulder hurts. 
And I'm like wiping my head and I'm like, I don't work for the fucking prime minister. This is not true. None of this makes any sense. What's going on? What's wrong with me? And then I woke up. So there you go. So um, I uh, typed it into the uh, internet to find out what it means when you're in a flying car. And it says that it means that I'm, uh, I'm, 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 um, I, I feel that I've done something. I've lied about something and I've concealed it. And that I can no longer control the lie, and it's going to it's going to overwhelm and consume me. That's what I read on the internet. So I can't think of anything that good, but there you have it. So I don't know. What do you guys make of that? I don't really know what to say to that. You never had those dreams? Well, you never had those like anxiety dreams? Not not quite like that. No. No. With, with some objectivity, Scott, I think I can help you interpret this dream. Okay. I think that this dream combines three things that are essential to your personality. Your love of politics, your love of evil Knievel, yes. and your fear of women. Naturally. I think that's right. Yeah. That's a pretty good breakdown. Yeah. I did, uh, I, for, I forgot to mention I was wearing panties. Um, oh, Jesus on. Christ. But anyway, <laughs> I'm sure that was just a, it meant nothing. I'm sure it meant nothing. All right, that's it. So that's we, we didn't expect to have time. news. On, we didn't expect to have news on this pod. Well, we don't. We're not breaking news, but we have newsy <laughs> stuff to talk about this morning. New, breaking news. You like that sound? Breaking <laughs> news <laughs> banner <laughs> across. Breaking the, news. <laughs> the Joker has escaped Arkham Asylum. <laughs> I love that sound. We have a cabinet shuffle today in Ottawa. An unexpected cabinet shuffle today in Ottawa. That is prompted apparently by the news that Minister of Innovation Navdeep Baines is not going to seek re-election and therefore is being dropped from the cabinet in favor of his Brampton seatmate um, or Mississauga seatmate Mississauga. Omar Algabra. Yeah, Mississauga seatmate Omar Algabra. And uh, so this is pretty big news. This is pretty big news because Nav Baines is both a very senior minister in the government and one of the most important organizational cogs in the liberal machine. Um, and somebody who people thought had ambitions himself to one day lead the party. Um, and um, and, and that people didn't talk about that in a dismissive way at all. So, um, uh, you know, there's, there's, lots, there's lots here. Uh, we can speculate about what might have caused... Um, Mr. Baines to step down, but certainly his decision has ramifications for for the government, both in terms of the change they have to make in the cabinet and in terms of uh, and in terms of their their political organization, because Nav was uh, so senior in that. Scott, do you know anything about this? I don't know anything about it. I've asked some folks overnight when news started breaking last evening, and the word I got um, is that. Nav isn't going to run again, doesn't want to run again. Now, I don't understand that. Like, there's nothing, I've known him since he was in his 20s, and there's nothing about the guy um, that has ever suggested to me that politics isn't the whole of his uh, professional focus and that he didn't have uh, greater ambitions. And so I was surprised by the news. I don't read anything nefarious into it because what I also know of the guy is he's as straight as it comes. Like, he's a... Um, super nice straight like it's very hard to find a guy who runs the political operation like he does who's as nice and as well like universally well liked as a guy right like he's um 
and still be effective. Generally so, wasn't yeah. I, generally wasn't said about I mean? Andre Willette, for example. Generally wasn't said exactly. about Andre Willette, for example. Yeah, people are saying, "God, that that Mark Lalonde's a, a cuddly guy." Um, <laughs> you know the. Um, so I don't, I don't know what's going on. I mean, on the face of it, it you know, it's it's kind of the almost absurd cliche. He, he's got a young family, wants to spend time with his family, so that makes no sense. But I don't have any substitute uh, explanation, and I'm extremely loath because I know him, him to be a decent person to speculate in any other fashion so i i guess we'll see what it is but you know the thing that i the thing that's interesting to me is if it was usually you, you do canvas your cabinet before you think it's likely that you're going to have an election and uh, and you say who isn't going to reoffer and you move those people out and you put new people in but if that's happened then then does, are we to understand that only nav said yeah i'm not reoffering nobody else um uh said that and so that's thing number one. Thing number two is there's some leadership politics in here. I mean, who knows when the next election is going to be that people will interpret this to mean that the prime minister is gearing up for the likelihood um, of, a, of a spring election. And, you know, that seems like a safe bet to me. But I don't think it means that a spring election is 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 a certainty. I think that it means that they want to be certain they're ready for a spring election if they choose to trigger it or if they find themselves forced into it. Um but, you know, the, the movement of Champagne, who clearly intends to run for leader uh, next uh, opportunity that it comes up, um, the movement of him out of foreign affairs, where I think it's fair to say he hasn't been able to leave a big footprint yet. Um, and into, I said, I'm sure they sold it to him and said, listen, uh, this is going to give you an economic portfolio. It'll enrich your, uh, the, and round out your your resume, you'll be able to say you've done foreign affairs, you've done domestic affairs, you've done economic issues, so this is good for you. Um, but I think it's going to make it harder for him. I, I think it's going to be harder for him to achieve um, uh, profile. We'll see what he what he, what he he makes of the, you know, I said industry, that portfolio, man, like everybody talks about it like it's such a prize, but I, I, I've never really I'd seen somebody turn it into a sharp tool. It always feels like it's a big lumbering the best politicians Scott, monster. the best pol the best the best politicians like for example Kretschmann gave it to both Tobin and to Rock attempting to give them a springboard to challenge Paul right and let's certainly say about Tobin very very skilled politician but wasn't able to make much of that of that portfolio there really isn't much there that you can do super politically attractive things with I, I think so too. And, you know, when people will be skeptical, they go, well, look at, you know, as far as industrial policy goes, NAV brought in the super clusters, you know, an opinion on those things ranges from great idea that hasn't yet uh, realized its potential to bad idea to it uh, doesn't matter, you know? So, and I mean, that's, and that's as, that's as concerted and consistent and persistent an effort as we've seen anybody make in that portfolio, the building of the super clusters, the creation of them, the, and, you know, it doesn't feel like it's a big political win. Maybe down the road, it may be that it's a positive. Down the road, we'll see. But so far, it doesn't feel like that garden has bloomed very much. So, um, you know, we'll see. What does it look like to you, Jenny? Well, I don't, listen, I don't know. This is this is your guys' uh, bailiwick uh, on this. Sometimes sometimes we, we, we look for, uh, th there's less to it than what we think that there's, uh, there's going to be. I think it's, uh, you know, as Scott said, he's, he's a young guy. Um, my understanding is he... He uh, uh, is extremely political, and he had a hand in picking who the candidates were in the 2015 election. And obviously, they carried on then to the uh, 2019 election. So 
he's he's and was one of Trudeau's early backers. So it, it seems strange that he's not running again at at uh, at his age. But who knows? Some we we can all speculate that there's maybe more to this than what there is. But you know who who knows? I guess I guess it's it's uh, we're taping this morning, so apparently it's happening in about seven minutes. So we'll see if our our phones go off that there's more to this shuffle than what we we saw uh, on the news last night. Right. Well, I want to give a shout out to uh, my friend Omar Algabra, who, uh, like Nav, is class of 2004, um, came in with us. Uh, I had a hand in recruiting Omar uh, to run. He's a great guy, talented guy, and uh, he's finally getting his opportunity to show that, and uh, I'm very pleased for him. And it's a big promotion. Like, transport's an important portfolio right now. Um, You would have thought. Yeah. Yeah. You say that um, with a hint of cynicism, but well, I don't think it's been as active or prominent, given the files it has on its plate, as it uh, as it could have been. I haven't uh, I haven't seen transport being super proactive through COVID. It's been kind of strange. Well, there is an airline industry, and something's going to happen to it in the next year. So, Omar's going to have uh, decisions to make and cards to play. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Anybody been paying any attention to events south of the border this past week? <laughs> a bit. A bit? Yeah. A bit. A bit. <clears throat> I don't even know what category to talk about this in. Uh, but um you know, I don't I don't know. I, I, I think that I probably was a little a, a little underestimated the initial initially the Capitol Hill event because it seemed like such a amateurish, silly, beer hall putsch type of thing, not the well-armed, militiaed thing that one might have feared uh, coming out. But that story is getting a little murkier in terms, including the role of the police as it goes on. And now the FBI say that there are Armed insurrections planned for every state capital over the course of uh, the next couple of weeks. So shit is getting real down there. Um, where's it going, Jenny? Well, um, you know, who knows? We'll see what happens in the state capitals. I think what happened on Capitol Hill was... Uh, extremely dangerous and deplorable. And, and I tweeted last week that it was a form of uh, domestic terrorism. I think uh, uh, what happened was, um, uh, you know, kind of an unbelievable thing. Um, you know, in terms of the police, I think the question that people have to ask is, why were there so few of them? Uh, there, was, there was going to be a protest or there was going to be a, uh, you know, what, you know, whether we want to say, I think the vast, vast, vast majority of people came uh, that went to that protest were uh, coming uh, to do a peaceful protest. They were coming to like stand outside. They were going to chant. Um, but why were there so few P- Capitol Hill police that were actually um, that were actually uh, on the Capitol when there was going to be a protest? We talked about uh, David. You and I were on CBC last week, and we talked about uh, uh, how security ramped up after you know nine eleven, and then security ramped up in twenty fourteen after. Uh, the uh, the shooting on Parliament Hill, and so and, and at the, the the Canadian War Memorial. So it's interesting to see what um, uh, what uh, is is going to happen in terms of this. But I think uh, I think it's I think 
kind of the aftermath as, as and I think we're probably going to get into this is it's the aftermath, like putting Trump aside, the aftermath of kind of what has happened in the last kind of five days, I think is going to be uh, a more interesting topic of conversation. I agree with that. You know, for years, people said this time's different. This time Trump's gone too far. This time he's going to pay a consequence. This time others will stand up and stand against him. And it never happened. And it has started to happen this time. But the fact that this time comes when he's powerless, when he's on his way out, when there's 9, 10, 14 days left in his term as president, makes me highly cynical uh, about at least some of the responses that come from uh, less likely quarters. And so when people start, you know, particularly from the GOP, I see some strategic outrage um, in addition to sincere outrage about the Capitol Hill um, insurrection and and in particular Trump's A, uh, encouragement, inducement of it from the microphone and B, his unwillingness to do anything about it, uh, to try to call it down, to try to calm it down which I do think is unforgivable. Like it is an astonishing thing that a leader would just sit by watching the TV and like, you know, um, you know, sort of clicking his heels and uh, in his case, you know, eating well done steak and drinking Coke. Um, I, I just, but to me now what's happening is super interesting because the GOP has tolerated this guy or celebrated this guy for at five years. And now there is, it feels like, a full-fledged effort in the last 10 days of his presidency to say, we are going to declare that chapter dark and closed. And I think the GOP faces a very dangerous uh, set of choices here because I do think there needs there to be, uh, they, they do need to face a reckoning about how much they enabled this aberrant uh, president and all of his unfitness. But on the other hand, um, I think their rush now to link arms with the likes of Nancy Pelosi and to condemn the president might have lasting implications for them. So, because I think their hypocrisy gets born uh, obvious, and then they're going to have to consider if they're going to stand and condemn all this, then they're going to be asked, well, what about your role in this? And what about the way you fuel this? And I, I think that the distinctions people are trying to make of, well, I was okay with a presidency that was, you know, trying to keep our economy strong, but uh, I, I never signed on for riots. And they're trying to make riots the line that was crossed. Well, there were other lines that were, draw, uh, that, that were crossed throughout this thing that people didn't have any uh, moral objection to. And so I think the GOP... Uh, they, they're in big trouble, in my view, because suddenly, you know, you know, Trump, I love I, I, I love the shaming of the guy. I love to watch it. Like, I love the fact that Bill Belichick won't accept the Medal of Freedom from him. Right. The, the, the PGA is taking away uh, the uh, the PGA uh, championship from him. Right. Like it's suddenly they're just everyone is rubbing shit in his face and saying, I want nothing to do with this guy. But I think for the GOP, they're going to find that Belichick, look, Belichick, yeah. proven, a proven, a proven cheater. Exactly. A, a proven well, this, cheater says, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> well, that's what's going on now. Now, Corella DeVille is saying, listen, I don't want to have anything to do with this guy. He's not very kind to animals. You know, it's a, it's ridiculous. And I think the GOP has got to be careful. 
you know, I like to see the condemnations, but they got to be careful because it's so transparent and so obvious that the louder they bang their shoe, the more I think that people will say, well, then there needs to be a reckoning because you're going to condemn this in moral terms and you have to think about the moral implications of your support for this, your silence in favor of this. They're all vichy. And if they're going to declare that he's Hitler, then they're vichy. And if they're vichy, well, they get hanged. So that's, they, they, they got some problems. Okay, well, I actually think, the, uh, uh, let, let's talk about the problems the Democrats now are, are going to be facing. So uh, Joe Biden and uh, uh, ran a campaign that basically said, uh, we're, going to, we're, we're going to heal the country. We're going to, like, we're going to bring everyone together. He, he made a speech on, on, uh, on Friday that basically uh, made it seem that all 74 million people that voted for Donald Trump were the same as the people that stormed the Capitol, which is absolutely uh, not the truth. And so if the Democrats learn nothing from uh, the, the last election, everyone's talking, yes, Joe Biden won and it was a commanding victory. But let's actually look at, at the facts. They have a one seat majority in the uh, Senate and they have a 10 seat majority in the in the House at 435 seats. That's actually not a very, that's not a, a big uh, a big majority. And and the Republicans didn't lose any seats. And, and some of the seats they picked up are some very strong um uh, very accomplished women. So there's going to be a new face. And the one thing that kept the Democrats, uh, the Democratic Party together uh, was Donald Trump. So you have the AOCs and the squad, as she likes to call it. And then you have uh, you have Biden and Pelosi, who are seen as more moderates. And so um, the, the thing that for the last, as I said, the last uh, uh, four years, two years that kept them together was the hatred for Donald Trump. Well, Donald Trump is gone now. And so uh, uh, there is very different objectives in, in that this party has. So I actually think that if it's the two parties, it's two parties. And so I think if the, if the Democrats uh, continue to vilify 74 million people, it will continue to polarize. Uh, it will actually continue, continue to polarize uh, the U S um, and uh, they've got their own internal divisions. I think it's going to be a very interesting uh, lead up to the, um, uh, to the midterms because Trump is gone. I, I think that you will, Trump is gone. Um, any chance that I think he thought he had uh, to maybe do, make a comeback in 2024, uh, uh, that, that ship sailed last week. I think his kids are gone, um, and they should be if, if the GOP actually wants to be serious about, um, uh, serious about uh, next steps. And I think you're going to see an interesting two years leading up to the, uh, leading up to the midterms. Well, hang on. Hang on. I, I'm sorry. I think Trump should be. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. What? What? Trump? What? Like, I, I, I object <laughs> to that reasoning. Um, I really do. And, what reasoning? And, well, you can't what? vilify 74 million. I don't really think he vilified 74 million people. I don't think, I think that if, if you're the president-elect and you're not condemning of what you saw last week, I don't know what you can do. I don't know where he pointed out that anybody who voted for Trump is a, is a criminal and the equivalent of those who, who uh, stormed the uh, Capitol. So I don't know that that's a fair assumption. I, I am, but more importantly, Trump isn't gone. Uh, there's 10 days left and he's going to the Alamo today. So fuck only knows what he's going to unleash at the Alamo. So I wouldn't take any comfort that it won't, that we will not have more ugliness in the next 10 days. Secondly, are you sure um, he's not going to the Alamo land? Are you sure he's not going to the Alamo landscaping club? That's uh, right. He's going to the Alamo. You'll find out he's at a car rental agency. Oh, Jesus. What's going on? Um, this is where Davy Crockett died here. Next to the SUVs. Um, but I, I think more seriously, like I, I don't, th 
This is the problem. I think that the GOP face, the line of argument that you just made, Jenny, to be blunt, is essentially, you know what, bygones are bygones, walk past it, you can't call people out for their association and support of this guy. I'm sorry. We always knew this guy was an immoral pig. You always tell us, oh, your hatred of, of Trump blinds you. I think my hatred of Trump is justified in every way, shape, and form, politically, morally, in every single way. And I think that people that supported Trump do need to account for the fact that they supported and enabled this. And this isn't the first manifestation of how awful this guy is by, by any account. And I think the GOP, this is my point, the GOP faces a real dilemma because if it takes that line, which is, you know what, now's the time to heal and there'll be no accountability for the role we played in enabling this pig, that's a problem. If on the other hand, they object really loudly, then they have to more fully account for what they did and what they didn't do. And that's going to rip their party to pieces. So they're in a bad spot. And if, and yeah, sure, the Democrats face choices, but I'd much rather have their choices than the choices that confront the GOP. Because I think their willingness to support this kind of rhetoric, this kind of philosophy, and ultimately this kind of candidate and president is now causing them to it's an existential crisis, and it should be, because at, this, at the heart of it, it is a set of immoral choices, literally immoral choices. He's that fucking bad. The guy's that fucking bad, and they knew it. Okay, well, if he was that bad, that's what I'm But, Scott, that's my point, and when I would go back to the, to the Democrats, if he was that fucking bad, how come there is obviously a marginalized or there are people within the u.s that do not feel the democrats represent them and so they voted for the republicans or they voted for donald trump uh because they did not feel that uh uh, uh joe biden and 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 the democrats uh represented them so i guess what i'm saying is you cannot say that 74 million people are like horrible people he was trump was elected the president of the united states so like i i have a real problem understanding this like I, I think you've got to remove what happened on Capitol Hill. Like the Democrats have to understand why he was why he was elected in the first place and why he continues and why the Republicans continue to have the support they do. And in the next two years, it's not going to be Trump. So so take the boogeyman of Trump away. It's going to be the Dan Crenshaws. It's going to be the Nikki Haley's. It's going to be the 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 the, the new uh, Congress people that were uh, elected uh, elected in November. It's 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 going to be it, it's going to be. Uh, those people that are going to be front and center, but the Democrats have to the Democrats have to figure out as to for all the reasons that you're upset about it. Still, 74 million people voted for Donald Trump, and and the Democrats have very very small majorities in both the houses. I know how dangerous this comparison is, but lots and lots and lots of people also supported Hitler. Right. And they, they did in Germany. And after Second World War, there had to be a reconciliation. And you had to say, well, how how, how do we support it? Because, you know, not everybody honest to fuck, was. An yeah. Honest you're, to you're, fuck. You're, seriously. You're, you're comparing a dictator who put six million people uh, into uh, into concentration camps to Donald Trump. Like I'm, compa is I'm comparing authoritarianism and fascism, which is I think is exactly what he's been revealed to be. And I'm saying that the party that enabled that can't just say, let's turn the page and remember there's a constituency out there for it. So we have to see how much we can fill. Can we fill the cup half full without it rolling, without, without it spilling over again? No, they have to come to grips with this thing. They've enabled a monster. And I think Trump, what you're saying Trump's is, gone. I think what you're saying is, I think what you're saying is ridiculous, and it's and it's the reason that the Democrats didn't do as well as what they should have done in this election. It's it's a it's a ridiculous thing to say that Donald Trump is compared to Hitler. I I I'm I, like. 
I'm comparing even... it to the fascism and the authoritarianism of those movements in the 1930s. I for certain am. All right. Well, let's, let's talk. If we want to talk about fascism, let's talk about big tech then and uh, censorship. Okay, sure. What do you mean, Jen? Well, so uh, we now are in a place where multinational big tech corporations are deciding what uh, people uh, see, like what, what information people read and digest. Yeah, I don't know how I, I mean, I, I'm a person that believes that Trump should be sanctioned. In fact, I'm a person that believes that Trump should be impeached before he leaves office because I, I think that there needs to be, just to set the record straight historically, there needs to be a sanction uh, for what he's done. That doesn't make me super comfortable with Zuckerberg or uh, Twitter Jack Dorsey. deciding whether... What? Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter. Jack Dorsey deciding whether or not um, he specifically has a platform um, to speak, I mean, not that I want him to have a, not that I want him to have a platform, but again, I'm thinking about precedent here. Um, so it's not about Trump. It, it feels to me like it's wrapped up in the monopoly nature of these organizations and therefore the power that they, the power that they have. And, and, uh, you know, if, if people are going to be sanctioned in a sense that they have their public platforms taken away from them. Whose decision is that anyway? Well, but it's it's become it's become Twitter's and big tech. So so David, I disagree with you when you say that uh, it, it this is kind of this is this this is the like this is what they do. So I actually Twitter is a, a private company. So I agree if they want to sanction Donald Trump uh, because they say he incites violence, absolutely it is their choice. But then that's a policy they have, and so you, you this is a platform that still has the uh, uh, Ayatollah of Iran who who talks about death to the Jews. Uh, there is ISIS accounts. There is Hamas and Hezbollah operatives that 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 operate freely on 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 Twitter, as well as uh, people, in, as well as the Chinese government, the Russian government. So, if if this was actually a uh, if this was a policy that was actually in, enforced by Twitter, I would say yes, this makes sense. But it doesn't. It obviously is. It makes it just about Trump. I'm troubled by all those things too, and how you make those decisions and how you take away people's platform. On the other hand, I don't think that the failure to implement comprehensive policies that are beyond any quarrel or contest mean that you have to tolerate, like you can't say until the policy is perfect, we can act in no way whatsoever. I, I think that the perpetual... Um, inciting of people, uh, the use of the platform to tell people things that aren't true, to anger them and to rile them up. I think there's, I think there's real issues with that. I do that the, the headache with it, the, the, the giant quandary with it is that these platforms are so ubiquitous and powerful and monopolistic that the consequence of having somebody that runs them remove the platform means that in today's day and age, you really are shutting them out of a major medium. And um, and, and that's, that's, that's a really uncomfortable amount of power to vest in the hands of some CEO who in all these cases, we know themselves to be tremendously imperfect people. And I would add and make the same point that I had made about politicians that are denouncing Trump only now, I, I, I regard with enormous amounts of cynicism, the sudden courage that these platforms have, 
uh, in attacking Trump, shutting down Trump, shutting down those associated with Trump, only now once his power is clearly uh, dissipating. Um, I mean, courage would have been to shut the guy and to challenge the guy uh, when he was at the zenith of his powers and he could have done something heavy on them. But no, they're only doing it now when they sense that he's weak. So I, I that that makes me equally uncomfortable with the policy. But I, I struggle with the alternative, which is just permitting him to continue to say it. I think the problem is that they didn't act earlier. What is the policy? What's the criteria? Should Max That's Bernier have a Twitter account? Well, this is the problem. Should Max right? Bernier have a Twitter account? Well, and, you know, we have, you have editorial standards that uh, were, you know, created over decades by journalistic institutions in the 19, in the 20th century that have now started to fray and they don't exist on, on Twitter. So those mediums and those other, and social media. So those, those stand, those journalistic, those, those ethical guidelines that were established, which could be challenged at times and, you know, were subject to bias, but at least there was something there. Um, those things now don't exist whatsoever, and arguably, these social media platforms are more powerful in today's world than the New York Times and the Washington Post ever were in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. So, I, you know, to me, those questions should not be answered by um, executives who are solely running those organizations for their own profit or at least majorly driven by that there's got to be some broader public mm -hmm. interest test uh that can be objectively applied do you agree with that jenny yeah, that there's a I, public I, interest test that you just don't want jack dorsey applying you're not you're not opposed to a sanction on somebody that abuses twitter the way trump was abusing it you're just not comfortable but i think there's a lot of people the company abuse twitter it. people abuse twitter every day like like I, 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 like when I when I was running Stephen Harper's campaign, I had terrible things said about uh, said about me. I I had you know you know death threats and things were like that people were saying about me. It, it it's it's the medium that I thought we were over that, Jenny. I thought you'd forgiven me for that. <laughs> um, but i just don't think that i i don't think that jack dorsey or uh, mark zuckerberg uh have the right uh that to uh the right to decide what americans or what people around the world actually see because it's not as i said it's not held to the same standard this is not it's not like it's twitter policy where if if you know you you tweet something that is, uh, you know, falls into these guidelines, you're off. And so the, the reason that, you know, you have people, if, if you, you want to talk about it, people that think that there's, uh, um, I hate to say the word conspiracy, but you think there's, the, 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 the cards are stacked against uh, Republicans or conservatives. This feeds into this, because why is Donald Trump sanctioned when there are abs actually murderous dictators um, uh, and terrorists uh, that still have a platform on Twitter? And my argument is that just because there are other awful people that continue to have a platform doesn't mean that we should remove other, you know, we, we should. No, but the criteria is important. It, I agree with that. But the criteria is important. But the answer it can't, can't be, be more, that, that, But the answer can't be do nothing until we can meet in a laboratory and compose a perfect policy. That can't be the answer because I personally don't think that. Without well, they've had five years to be thinking about it, Scott. They didn't have to invent the policy in the last week. They've had five years to be Which thinking I, about it. I, and I, I just made that same point, right? Um, you know, but I don't think Trump could have been president without Twitter. I don't think that Trump could have been president without social media. I don't think the rallying effect of uh, 
some of the constituency that he was able to to gather would have occurred without uh, Facebook groups and that. So I think that this stuff, you know, there's the drink and there's the straw that stirs it, and these things are coming together in a powerful way in our in, in our modern world and. I think those organizations have have wider obligations. There is a public interest, and I think that we've got to take it out of just the hands of those individuals and say, "Sorry, you get to you get to make the call based on what your evaluation is in this month, on this day, and this year as to whether your business interests will be too negatively impaired if you do the right thing or not." Yeah. So there's a concerted attempt, it seems to me, to link the federal conservatives here in Canada with the and 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 some provincial conservatives in Alberta, particularly, um, with Trump, and uh, to have the Trump stink wash over the the federal conservatives. And I don't know at the moment whether this is just something that's happened, a war that's happening between partisans on Twitter or whether this is something that's actually going to seep into the public consciousness. But I'd bet a fair bit of money that Candace Bergen in the MAGA hat shows up in a liberal ad in the next election campaign. Possibly. And I think it should. And this is where Jenny, you're not going to like anything I have to say here, but I, I think, you know, particularly on the right, but all across the political spectrum, um, we in Canada do... Uh, import uh, professional political techniques from the United States. Like, you know, you, you, know, you go back to the age of, of direct mail, right? That, you know, it was because there's more money, because there's more races, because there's more incentive to build these things, to perfect these things, and to focus on them on a full-time basis that happens in the United States. We then sort of borrow those techniques. And in part of that means then we borrow their language, their positioning, um, all of that stuff. And we see that happening and in many ways, to their credit, at least professionally, the conservatives were better at adapting and um, in incorporating those things in many stages of, say, the last 40 years or so. Um, I think one of the dangers of the past decade is a lot of the rhetoric and reflex of mega um, ha has been adopted, not in whole, but in part. You see it bleeding into the rhetoric. You saw Make Canada Great Again being a consistent theme in the leadership campaign of Aaron O'Toole. You see people laughing and wearing the mega hat like Candace Bergen. And I think that you got to look at it now if one of the consequences is that if everyone's going to stop and say, all right, whoa, hang on, we're declaring Trump to have been a dark chapter and everything associated was terrible and we're going to do an ex post facto um, declaration of that, then there's going to be a lot of uncomfortable moments and photos and phrases um, that people will have to reconcile. Um, because trying to say, whoa, 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 I was never for that with Trump and I now condemn him, people again are going to get trapped. It's like, well, then why did you run on Make Canada Great Again? Why, did you, why were you happy to borrow um, messages of resentment and the politics of resentment and use those and the anti-elite stuff then use that to help fuel your leadership campaign because you thought that worked well with your constituency because you saw how it could be employed in the united states and you thought hey you know what i'm going to cut and paste that over here and i can get that to work i can raise some money i can generate some constituency of support and maybe get myself elected leader um not saying that those people are trump saying that they saw an opportunity um to strengthen their political position and now they're going to have to reconcile with that why can't you why can't you why can't you say that the Conservative Party issued its ultimate verdict on this with Kelly Leach's leadership? Why can't you say Kelly Leach tried to run a Trump 
tried to run a Trump campaign for leader and was soundly and completely rejected by that. Okay, so what what exactly is a Trump campaign? So so I know so I can answer this question. Uh, I think a I think a Trumpism is a uh, populist anti-intellectual appeal to nativism and to tradition and to uh, some sort of traditional uh, values that in the United States is a very thin smokescreen for race. Okay. Um, well, I, I don't think you've seen any... I, I actually don't even know what to say to that because I'm, I'm not sure anyone has has taken uh, Donald Trump's playbook and and uh, and run with it uh, and run with it uh, and run with it here. Uh, just not even Leach. No, I think Ke uh, who knows what Kelly's campaign was was uh, was based on. Uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't genuine. It wasn't Kelly. That's partly why she uh, why she didn't do well. Um, uh, right. So I'm not sure who's took the who's taken the playbook, but but. You know, not to, to to go back to the American stuff, but by calling it a unintellectual uh, appealing to unintellectual people, uh, this is the problem that liberals and Democrats have. No, sorry, I didn't say that, Jenny. If I could just I correct myself, that. I said I said it's an anti-intellectual appeal. I'm not saying it's appealing to unintellectual people. I'm saying it's a rejection of science, a rejection of experts, and an embracing of common sense, what you can see with your own eyes. So it's not, it's not, I'm not saying you're appealing to dumb people or that you're trying to appeal to un, unintelligent people. I'm saying it's an anti-intellectual pitch. And I'm not saying that about the conservatives. I'm saying that about Trump. Uh, and and so, and so, so go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 no ahead. You, I've, I'm done. I'm done. I have nothing more. Well, well, but so I, I, I guess, so the, the question is, is, is how is this going to affect, uh, how is this going to affect uh, Aaron and the conservative campaign? I, I, I don't think it's going to affect them at all. So, so, so you had a, you had a candidate who wore a, uh, you have a, you, you, you have an MP that wore a, uh, make America great hat, uh, uh, you know, at an event. I, I, I don't actually see what the big deal of this is. Uh, Sorry, Jenny, I think, I'm, I'm not actually, I'm, I'm, I'm not actually for my part, I'm not actually necessarily asserting it is a big deal. I'm just wondering whether it can be a big deal politically and you can see the effort. So yesterday we had the business about whether or not there'd been an interview with rebel, um, with the rebel and whether it was an interview or whether it was just an exchange of emails. But if Aaron O'Toole talks to the rebel, a lot of people draw a lot of conclusions about that. Yeah, well, see, but, but, but this is like, so, so basically it wasn't an interview with the rebel. It was uh, a series of email questions, whatever. Um, the problem the conservatives has is that they keep taking this bait. So if, if I'm the liberals, I'm, of course, trying to keep this stuff going, this like identity politics and what have you. I'm, I'm trying to make it seem that Aaron O'Toole and Donald Trump are are like this, uh, even though obviously that that uh, uh, even that they're not. And so the, the, the issue I have with the conservatives uh, is that they 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 follow these these issues. So they spend a day uh, discussing whether it was an interview with with Rebel, whether it wasn't an interview with Rebel. Uh, they get mired in in trying to explain themselves when there's actually big things that are that are going on, like, uh, for example, vaccines, which which although we've you know, we talked about it and I'm not going to go into this, but we've procured more vaccines than anyone else in the world. We just don't have them here. And so um, uh, there's actually big issues that the conservatives sh should be going on. Uh, and yet they continue to fall into the liberal trap of discussing 
uh, these issues, which I don't think the vast, vast majority of Canadians care about. I'll just add one. Speaking last of vaccines. Yeah, go ahead. Finish off. Well, on, I'll just on one last point on it. I, I do think it's more important than that. I think it's more fundamental than that. And I think conservatives, no conservative is going to take my advice. But in all honesty, as uncomfortable as it is, I really think that it isn't just a matter of tactics. I, I think, like, obviously, the issues of race haven't been incorporated. They don't, if for no other reason than they, um, not only are they wholly objectionable, and people haven't gone there, conservatives haven't gone there here in Canada, but they also don't, they don't have the same political resonance. It's, it's a different political culture uh, in Canada than, um, than the United States. So that stuff, there's lots of differences uh, between the conservative movement and mega movement in the United States. And I'm not trying to say they're the same. I'm saying that they borrowed enough of the phraseology. They borrowed enough of some, of the markers of it, the anti-intellectual, uh, the resentment, the anti-elite language, and employed it sometimes sincerely, sometimes with cynicism, enough that examples can be cited over and over again. And I think the challenge for conservatives is they are going to get confronted with these examples. And, they, and, if, and if we're going to suddenly say, you know what, everything to do with Donald Trump is, is to be condemned now, and that's going to be the, um, the center of opinion going forward, then they're going to have to sort of say, okay, so, so we can't do an interview with the rebel. We're not going to do that. Um, we don't employ these kinds of phrases. We're going to alter our rhetoric on this or not. Like they're going to have to figure this. It isn't just tactics. They're going to have to figure out where they stand on, on some of that, the politics of grievance. Uh, let me just, let me characterize it as that. I think they're going to have to figure out what their relationship is with the politics of grievance, which so fueled Trump. And we do hear it and we do see it in conservative rhetoric here. And I think they're going to have to, they're, they're going to have to decide where they stand on that, or they're going to get slapped across the head with it over and over again speaking of grievances speaking of grievances jenny did the cabinet ontario cabinet meet last night or this morning which day are they making their decision about the new lockdown measures last night monday night. last night so either of you what are we expecting today and what would be different how will our lives be different tomorrow than today uh, well, from what I've heard, I'm not sure it's going to be that much different. So I know that things like manufacturing and construction were on the table. I'm not sure what the decision on manufacturing was from what I've heard. Uh, construction uh, is is basically, uh, for the most part, 95% uh, go ahead to where it was, which I think is, uh, is smart. Um, I know that last week they were considering uh, um, a uh, curfew. Uh, it seems that they're not doing that, but... Uh, uh, it seems that standalone grocery stores and pharmacies can stay open um, until eight o'clock and uh, otherwise uh, stores have to close. So I think that was a, that's big box. So I think Costco and, and Walmart have to close at eight o'clock. And other than that, I, I, there, there doesn't seem to be that much um, uh, from what I've heard uh, that much different from where, where Ontario is right now. So we're just supposed to fall out of our chair. There's no other thing. He said Listen, we'd I, fall out of our chair when we we'd fall out of our chair when we saw the modeling. Well, and some of the modeling some of the modeling has come out where they're they're talking again about you know ten thousand cases a day and you know hundreds of people in on ventilators and and what have you. So uh, we'll see we'll 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 see what this brings. But I I think that we're heading into uh, we're heading into where we were kind of uh, in March of last year. Like I think that. You know, it's going to be every two weeks, there's going to be an announcement that schools are closed uh, and that it's going to be e-learning. And every, every two weeks, it's going to be like kind of 
uh, it's like a drip, drip, drip. There'll be every, every two weeks, there'll be more things that will change until we're eventually into a, uh, uh, into a full curfew like Quebec has. And, and the thing is, Legault has basically admitted that the curfew in Quebec, uh, you know, will not actually uh, stop the spread. It's to send a message to people. So it's, it's politicians are now even ad are admitting that their decisions are not based on science. Yeah. Uh, why does Trump treat these things like a game show? So last week he says, boy, there's modeling coming Ford. out next Ford, Tuesday. Dave. And when you, you called him Trump Ford. Oh, Jesus. Why does Ford treat these things like a game show? Uh, by the way, that's not, I'm not comparing those two people. That's not a Freudian slip. That's just a stupid slip. Um, uh, why does he treat these things like a game show? Last week he says, we've got modeling next Tuesday. It's going to, you're going to fall out of your chair and we're going to have a big announcement. And then you kind of get things that taken all, everything's on the table and then curfews off the table. And then a few other things are off the table. And we got the announcement coming today. Seems like a bogus way to manage this thing. Certainly makes me impatient uh, and frustrated as, you know, citizen A with, you know, small kids at home and all that kind of stuff. I, 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 I'd be interested in Jenny's uh, insight. She would know better than I. I mean, you can look at it as a deliberate strategy and say that, you know, he's trying to condition the public. I think we're past the point of being conditioned or needing to be conditioned. I, I think it's more likely indiscipline on his part. I think it's probably that instinct of a populist politician who likes to talk like he's not in charge of government. He's observing government, you know. My God, folks, you're going to see this. You're going to be astonished. Well, why would I be astonished? Don't talk to me like you're a passenger on the bus. You're driving the motherfucking thing, right? So, um you know, in this teasing out for days, I assume the other reason I think it may be indiscipline is... I suspect he just blurted that out because he'd seen the data and he's like, my God, when I can release it, I can't release it yet. Well, they hadn't actually made decisions. Um, so then they have to spend three, four days scrambling uh, to make the decisions to catch up with those things because he's previewed it all. I, so I think it's indiscipline. I think it's ham-fistedness. I don't know. But I don't really know what to say about it. I don't have much to say anymore about it because I, 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 I dislike listening to myself on the subject because i don't have anything thoughtful to say other than build a time machine you know to me like we are where we are um there's only so much you can do about it and most of the good suggestions are, are you know are, are, are to go back in time and do something different with schools and major employers and rapid testing and all those kinds of things um at both the federal level and heavily in the provincial level in ontario um in the summer and fall when we had a window and we didn't so now we're in a world of well does he shut down construction or not um and does he shut down major employers or not uh do we have a curfew or not and as jenny says you know people will tell you that the curfew doesn't matter but i think we're almost at the point where they're they're looking at they're, they're looking at measures that don't necessarily link to spread they're just looking at measures that say that that send the signal of you got to fucking stay home. You got to like remain in the basement, uh, sucking on uh, fresh water, and uh, you know watching Netflix. And I I think that's where we are until uh, the foot race with vaccines is won. I I I think. I mean I I don't know. So I'm pretty pessimistic and down about it. Well, I I hope we're not. I hope we're not there until vaccines because. 
you know, it's if if you if you actually look at regardless of the Fed saying everyone will be vaccinated vaccinated by September, if you look at the actual numbers, that's not the case. I think general vaccinations will start in September of this year, but I think we're looking at well into 2022 before um, uh, everyone is vaccinated. But in terms of Doug's approach to this uh, approach to dealing with uh, COVID daily, I, I don't think it's changed. Like ever, everyone's taught, like it hasn't changed. This is this is this is this is how Doug has approached this since March of last year, and this is you know why I was critical in April. And Scott, you would you were you were applauding him at, as how he was handling handling things, and so. You're never going to live that down, brother. You're never going to live that down. Can, you finish, and then I will defend myself for half a second, because you say it all the time, and I love having my nose rubbed in. I'm with her, man. I, I was know. there. I was I there. I know, but I will defend uh, myself, and you two are so, done. So, Jenny, so, why has Ford gone from super high ratings for handling of COVID to, to diminishing to the point where more people disapprove than approve of his handling of COVID? Because it was it was inevitable to happen because people are unhappy. So so not only like you know people people were happy people were not happy, but they could see a light at the end of the tunnel when they thought it was a couple months or a couple weeks. Uh, we're going into right. uh, almost week uh, you know in another couple of weeks we'll be into week eleven of basically lockdowns and what have you. And people are sick of the rhetoric. They're sick of hearing we're all in this together because they're not. So and and you're seeing more and more cases. You've you saw it with, with Phillips in terms of his vacation. There's now been uh, two hospital CEOs who have actually, one has taken a vacation and one traveled across the border uh, to see their family five times uh, over, the course of, uh, over the course of COVID. And so uh, you're seeing people going, okay, so I haven't, I haven't seen my, my grandparents and I haven't seen my parents and I haven't held my grandchild or seen my new niece, um, but yet these guys who are telling us to stay at home and are essentially shaming us uh, for trying to like live some form of, uh, life are actually doing exactly what they're telling us not to do it. So I think that the fact that more and more of this is coming to light, people people aren't listening. And I also think that human beings are not hardwired to be alone. And I think that uh, I think that the loneliness and and isolation of uh, uh, of of the pandemic is actually hitting people, and they're making the choice that you know I would rather risk getting COVID uh, if I could just spend an evening hanging out with people and. Uh, doing what I did prior to all of this happening. I drown a labradoodle puppy to be alone for an evening, but I recognize the pandemic <laughs> strikes different households in different ways. <laughs> so we started this show <clears throat> talking about a potential election this spring. And the vaccination schedules are coming out now and as Jenny says, the most optimistic case scenario being put out there is that uh, general public will be vaccinated in the fall. Um, and uh, so how does that, and it's become clear, I think it's becoming clear that as difficult and as problematic as the rollout of vaccination has been at the provincial level, that ultimately the timing will be dictated by supply, not by um not by provincial rollout, that the provincial delivery systems will catch up with supply at some point relatively soon, and then it will become how much supply do we have at what time. So if that's the case, what are the implications for a spring election from that? Um, uh, you know, uh, we, are, we are talking about a situation in which not many people are going to be vaccinated by the spring, and we are anticipating probably our most vicious months of COVID 
um, between now and then. So um, this makes probably a spring election look less attractive to the to the federal liberals than it might have looked previously. Yes, I'm not no. sure that uh, one of the things that I think I've made. You're not going to be able to run on a federal budget, right? If I could just put that on the table, like the federal budget is not going to be a bigger deal than COVID. No, and it's not going to excite and animate people and they're going to go, holy smokes, right? Wow, they're going to really fund the recovery and it's really smart. And then we've got a whole brand new world that they're financing and enabling and incentivizing. And that world will be grand and we'll all have honey and um, a flying car. That's electric. Um, I don't think any of that will happen. I don't think the budget will deliver that kind of like, woohoo, let's rock, uh, sort of electoral springboard. But I'm also not as convinced as I as I was initially um, that vaccine procurement is going to be um, the, the the deadly uh, political anchor that we all predicted. And I, I and I the reason I don't think that I'm starting to be skeptical of my own skepticism in the sense that like Jenny was just making the point about the rollout here, but we know by this weekend in Ontario, there's going to be another 140,000 doses. So that sounds good for this week. And then you could ask the question, yeah, but in absolute terms, that's not going to be enough. And what's going to happen three weeks from now? It's just that this thing keeps kind of rolling. New new developments occur. Uh, you know, there are more doses released. Uh, some of the options that we've been working on springboard. And so I just think that the, I think that the persistence of some huge vulnerability where Canadians are going, wow, it feels like we're real laggards compared to the rest of the world. That hasn't come to the fore. I'm increasingly convinced that it will not come to the fore. And I don't think it's going to become a barrier to calling an election if the prime minister thinks that calling an election is 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 what suits his interests. Um, I'm not convinced there's going to be a spring election. Most people are. I'm not. Okay, but which is wait, let, let me, I mean, I just want to, want to make you crystal clear on something. So Biden says... He's going he's gonna to vaccinate 100 million people in the first 100 days. We'll see. So that is the end of April. What, what, how many people are scheduled to be vaccinated in Canada by then? I don't know. I did that little tracker as to me. I pumped in my name, my age, all that kind of stuff. It told me I would be vaccinated in mid-July. And I'm just a regular 50-year-old guy. So... Um, right. And I assume that that, okay, so if it moves, I assume it's going to move toward true. now, not away from now. But I'm not sure that's actually the case. We're, they're, 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 they're chugging along at a, at a snail's pace in terms of these vaccinations. So, you know, we're not through long-term care homes. Uh, you know, my 94-year-old grandmother has not been contacted about uh, when she's going to uh, get her vaccine. She's not in a long-term care home. She lives with my aunt. My aunt's her caregiver. Um, so I think that, uh, and then you have issues like, and, and I'm not trying to sidebar, but issues in terms of, uh, the, uh, 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 prisoners getting vaccinated, uh, over the course of, uh, of the weekend. And, and I had a, I had a, I had a, I, I spoke with a lot of family. We had a family, uh, zoom call this weekend and my relatives, uh, even the ones that I would say have never voted for conservative, even when I was running conservative campaigns. We're actually bringing stuff like this. We're, we're bringing that issue up as being uh, as being a problematic issue. So I don't see like everyone's talking about numbers in terms of, you know, we're going to be, you know, here in July and here in September. But if you actually look at the rate of vaccination and you look at the rate of, of what the provinces are doing and the supply coming in, it's just it's it's impossible for us to to actually be there. I think that like we're, we're looking at 2022, uh, you know, 
I think we talked about it last week, David, Alberta put out that general vaccination will start in September, October. I think that I think Alberta is just the first province to be completely honest in terms of uh, when general vaccination will actually happen. Maybe, but I'll, I'll you know, I know liberals is- like to liberals like to sneer at this. Liberals like to sneer at this uh, prison vaccination thing. Um, but politically, you know, I mean, like the people don't think that prisoners really deserve anything. I remember, I remember testing some messaging about long-term care homes and the uh, stipend for food for a person in a long-term care home uh, is uh, eight dollars a day. And when we told people in focus groups that it was $8 a day, they go, ah, it doesn't sound like very much. It's probably pretty shitty. And they shrug their shoulders. When you say it's $8 a day, which is less than pe- less than we spend on food for prisoners, people go, whoa, that's fucking outrageous. I can't believe that we spend less on them than we spend on prisoners, right? Um, so it's a, it's a pretty powerful, it's a pretty powerful yeah. political little thing there. I don't dismiss the potency of that specific argument and, and arguments like that. Um, the, I guess I just, and again, I might be wrong, completely wrong and Pollyannish, but I just think it feels to me like I, that these predictions that it's going to, and I was making them also, I was making them alongside you guys, but it feels to me like this, this, this notion that um, we're going to be, you know, into 20, I, first of all, I'm not convinced that it's going to be 2022. I don't think, that's necessarily the case, but I just don't feel like people. Um, first of all, I think developments are happening more rapidly that actually show that to be less true than more true. And secondly, I just don't think that people are scorecarding it that way and are necessarily going to condemn the government. It feels to me like they got over the initial hump where people were going to look at this thing and say, oh, they fucked it up or they haven't fucked it up. I think people are on a stream of they haven't fucked it up. That can get undone, but I think it's got to get undone before it becomes a political problem. And I, I'm not sure we're there. Uh, well, I think as, con- as countries actually ramp up and, and, and people see on the news that countries like Israel is going to be fully vaccinated, everyone 16 and over is going to be vaccinated by the end of March. Um, uh, the U.S. is ramping up every day. Uh, to your point, 100 million people vaccinated by, uh, by, by April, David. So I think if, if we are lagging behind, and, and I think I've said this for the last several months, if we are lagging behind and we're sitting in the spring having gone through a uh, you know a winter lockdown in in uh, uh, in Ontario. I'll use Ontario as an example, and we're seeing entire countries that are vaccinated and starting to go on with normal life. And every two weeks, the governments are coming out and saying, "Well, you know, your kids can't go to school for another two weeks." And and you know, you know, I just someone just texted me a rumor that Ontario is going to institute a outside mask ban, which is by the way fucking batshit insane. Um, I, I think people are going to have less, uh, uh, they're going to be less forgiving, uh, less forgiving than they're already becoming with politicians. I think it's all relative and it's all relative to the United States. Canadians don't compare themselves to Israel or to Sweden or to any other country. They compare themselves to the United States for a whole bunch of reasons. The geography similar, the people seem similar, etc. And so, uh, to me, it's all relative. All of the talking about what is going to be is inconsequential politically. But the reality of what is in April, May, and June is, I think, enormously consequential politically. Yeah. Mm. I, I'm, it's all right. A rare Sounds like I get the last word. <laughs> Sounds like I get the last word. Listen, both of you, thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for being here today. It's great to see you. And uh, talk to you next week. I'll keep you updated on any um, any further dream activity. 
Please do. Yeah, <laughs> please send a note. <laughs> See you guys. <laughs>